Well, by all accounts, it had been an incredibly successful first day of public ministry for Jesus in the Galilean city of Capernaum. As three weeks ago, the last time we were in Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus had gone to the synagogue that day and preached a powerful sermon, expositing the scriptures with such insight and such intensity and authenticity and authority that the congregation was rendered speechless as they sat in stunned silence, feeling equal parts disturbed and enthralled. When suddenly a demon-possessed man interrupted his sermon with a loud cry, Jesus commanded him to silence and expelled the demon with a word. By the time he was finished... And he left the synagogue, the congregation was in an uproar, simply unable to comprehend what they had just seen and heard, nor who this man was who wielded such authority with his mere word. That evening, the diseased and the demon-possessed from all over the city gathered at the door of Simon Peter's house, and Jesus went out to meet with them, moving from person to person, touching, healing, commanding, cleansing, restoring. Never before had such power been seen in Israel. Now sure, there had been rumors of miracles and exorcisms from time to time around the region, but those were usually accompanied by elaborate rituals and prescribed incantations, more the work of magic than they were of divinity. But Jesus seemed to possess the power to heal the sick and to command the demons within himself. By the time he and his disciples retired for the night, Jesus was the talk of the entire city and into the regions beyond. He was a star. Which is why the next passage, today's passage, comes as such a surprise. Because at the very height of his popularity in Capernaum, just when Jesus could have gathered an enormous following about him, He left. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go then to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, if you detect a note of rebuke in Peter's words, I think you're right. The crowd in Capernaum was clamoring for Jesus, and Peter simply could not conceive as to why Jesus would be hiding out on the outskirts of the city in a desolate place outside of town rather than giving the people what they wanted. It didn't seem like a very good business model to Peter. Peter's rebuke of Jesus betrays his priorities. To Peter, a crowd means popularity, prestige, power, profit. See, Peter is still thinking like a businessman. Give the people what they want, supply their demand, and you control the market. Jesus' response to Peter reveals that he operates by a very different set of priorities. Is there a crowd clamoring for me in Capernaum? Then let's go someplace else. Because Jesus knew the hearts of the people in Capernaum. He knew that what they clamored for was not his message of faith and repentance and the kingdom of God, but what they wanted was his miracles. He knew that if he returned to Capernaum, he would not be received as a Messiah. He would not be received even as a prophet. He would be received as something of a carnival attraction. And Jesus did not come to be a carnival attraction. 
In other words, if Jesus returned to Capernaum, though he may draw a huge crowd, his ministry would be a failure when measured by his own standard of success. And it is at this point that I lay my indictment at the feet of the American Evangelical Church. We, as a whole, have established our priorities and we have measured our success more like Peter than like Jesus. In the American church, our mindset is bigger is always better. And so whatever it takes to get bigger, that's what we need to be doing. A growing church is therefore a successful church. And so churches establish their ministry priorities on the basis of what people say they want rather than what Jesus says they need. What the people of Capernaum wanted was miracles. You know, free health care. What Jesus knew they needed was the message of the kingdom. Think about it. Do churches that you know not hire or fire their pastors on the basis of whether or not they can grow a church? Do not pastors, and if you don't know this by experience, I'll just tell you it's true. Do not pastors boast about their church's attendance and all too often give in to the temptation to inflate or embellish those statistics? When pastors at conferences and conventions run into one another and inevitably ask that age-old question, how's your church going? All too often what they mean is, what are you running in attendance and how many did you baptize last year? And is it as many as we're running and is it as many as we baptized? When pastors have a high attendance on, their, on a given Sunday, they will take to Twitter and they'll humble brag about it saying something like this, what an awesome worship service this morning. The sanctuary was packed. Praise God. And let me decode that for you. What they mean is, I want all of my pastor friends who follow me on Twitter to know that people are finally beginning to realize what an awesome preacher I am. And it's absolutely sickening. There is an entire church growth industry out there with conferences, blogs, books, and consultants who will come to your church for a hefty fee and teach you how to grow it bigger. And if that sounds to you just like the business world, it is. The church has become a business, the pastor is its chief executive, the staff are middle management, and you are the consumer. And it is ungodly. Meanwhile, while all of this is transpiring in the American church, the church is nothing but a house of cards, ill-equipped to handle suffering or tragedy or sin or persecution. Its members are anemic and malnourished and often unregenerate and unconverted, and the whole thing is a giant hamster wheel, exhausting and eternally insignificant. It's just chaff. It's destined to be burned up and blown away. And I want First Baptist Nixa to be different. And if you are near, new here and you've noticed something different about this church, it has a different feel to it, I want you to know that's entirely intentional. We got off the hamster wheel a few years back, and today's passage helps to explain why. We have sought to be driven by a different set of priorities than drives the rest of the American church. Our goal is not church growth, but rather church health. Our aim is not to make converts, but to make Christians. We aim not for decisions, we aim for disciples. Our objective is not to get as many people as possible through the baptismal water so we can report it to the convention. Our purpose is to present every member complete in Christ. According to Colossians 1.28. 
That means our goal is to move as many people as possible from wherever it is that they come to us into strong, sound, faithful, loving, joyful, hopeful, transformed, mature believers. And that's not accomplished in the same way that you accomplish enormous numeric growth. It requires a completely different set of priorities. Now, do not hear me say that this is an excuse to be lazy in evangelism or to become ingrown or inwardly focused in our orientation or to become careless in our presentation so that we pay no mind or attention into attractiveness and our welcoming environment and hospitality. That's just being a good steward of the community in which God has placed us. But it is an affirmation that, biblically speaking, an effective church is a healthy church. And a healthy church is not a church intoxicated by the allure of the crowd and its potential to bring those all-important P's. Power, prestige, popularity, and profit. That's not what we're after. A healthy church, namely a biblical church, takes its cues from him who is the head of the church. We do our level best to align our priorities to Christ's priorities and to make sure that our ministry reflects his ministry. And what did Jesus do when the crowd wanted him? He left. Because he knew that the crowd's priorities were not his priorities. There's a lesson to be learned here. And by God's grace, we'll begin to learn it this morning. As I studied this passage, I found three ministry priorities that we need to adopt as our own if we're going to be a Christ-centered, biblical, healthy, effective church by Jesus' standard of success. Number one, Jesus made prayer a priority, and so must his church. Now, I don't know if it does to you, but when I hear we need to make prayer a priority, immediately I think cliche. Why? Because everybody says that and hardly anybody does it. Almost every church would affirm the importance and the necessity of prayer in theory, but in actual practice, prayer does not play a central role in the life of most churches, and when it is offered, it is offered in a shallow, weak, or anemic way. And I don't think that First Baptist Nixa is immune from that criticism. I don't think that prayer plays the central role that it should in the life of this church, and for that I accept full responsibility. But let's fix it. Let's spend some time this morning examining the question of why Jesus prayed and what that means for the ministry priorities of this church. So look with me beginning at verse 35. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And what I want to ask is, why? I'm going to suggest that Jesus prayed for two primary reasons. Number one, he prayed for spiritual power. Now, why, you may ask, did the Son of God, who possesses all power and authority in heaven and on earth, need to pray and ask for spiritual power. The answer is, I believe, that in the time of his earthly ministry, Jesus did not preach or heal or obey or act out of his own divine power. He lived his earthly life in a state of self-limitation so that He would be a fit substitute and representative for us, for sinful humanity. See, Jesus Christ, the the second person of the eternal triune Godhead, 
who has always existed in the form of God, by whose word and power the universe came into being, when he became incarnate and was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and took on flesh and became man, he did so in order to fulfill all righteousness." according to Matthew 3.15. That is, he did so in order to love and trust and honor and obey and enjoy God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thereby fulfill the covenant of creation that God had established with mankind in the garden. He came as the perfect man, the representative man, the second Adam, to do that which Adam had failed to do and thereby merit the blessings of that covenant and give it to all who trust and obey him. Well, if that's true, if Jesus was the perfect man, the second Adam, succeeding at every point in which sinful humanity has failed so that his perfect righteousness could be imputed to us by faith and we could receive the blessing of the covenant, then he had to do that in his own power. He had to do that in his humanity. Because if Jesus had resisted temptation in his divine power, how would that have represented us? We don't have divine power to overcome temptation, do we? And if Jesus had ministered, if he had preached and healed and cast out demons in his own divine power, how would, how would that have represented us? We don't possess divine power to preach and teach and heal. So if Jesus is to become our substitute, if he is to become our representative, when he's acting as our representative and substitute, he must act out of his humanity and self-limit his divinity. Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, we must remember that though Jesus was God, he did not live his life as God apart from the Father, but rather as a man in dependence upon God. He said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, John 5, 19. And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works, John 14, 10. Jesus depended upon the Father for his power. So when Jesus overcame temptation, he did so as a man, by faith, in dependence upon God through the Spirit. And when Jesus ministered the word or healed the sick or cast out demons, he did so as a man by faith in dependence upon the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28, for instance. If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons. If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you, which is the very same power by which the church casts out demons. Now, as I wrote this portion of the sermon, I sensed that I was on somewhat dangerous ground. Hang with me for just a second, and I'm going to do a little bit of explanation that you need. The relationship between the divine and the human natures of Christ is a mystery. And one must tread carefully when we go swimming in these waters. So I offer the preceding explanation with the understanding that while possessing both a divine and a human nature, Jesus was and is still one person. And that the two natures are united in the words of the Chalcedonian Creed without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation in what is known as the hypostatic union. By stating that Jesus acted out of his own human nature instead of his divine nature, I'm in no way intending to confuse, change, divide, or separate those two natures in any way. I don't fully comprehend how Jesus 
could be one man with two complete natures, one human and one divine, and how he could self-limit his divine and yet act out of his human nature. The mystery of the hypostatic union stretches the abilities of my mind beyond its limits. But I do know this. That by Jesus' own admission, though possessing all power in heaven and on earth, he lived his life and ministered in dependence upon God by the power of the Spirit. That is, in the same way in which, in which we must live and minister. And that's why he prayed. And that's why we must pray. If this church is to bear any spiritual fruit of lasting, eternal significance, it will only happen by God's power and not ours. How then do you reckon we will receive the power of the Spirit to minister in everlastingly significant ways? We've got to pray. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus tells his church, he tells us, we must abide in Him as He abided in the Father. And the Spirit must flow through us in the way the Spirit flowed through Christ in fruit-bearing power. Well, how did Jesus receive the Father's power to bear fruit? He asked for it. And so must we. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A church like ours can be busy about many things, preaching, worship, Bible study, discipleship, Awana, VBS, evangelism, community outreach, helping the poor. None of it can be eternally significant unless it is done in the power of God's Spirit. It's just chaff, and it's wasted time and effort. In order to bear fruit that remains into eternity, in order to see sinners converted, can you do that? I can't. I can't change their heart. In order to see sinners converted, in order to see lives changed, in order to see families transformed, in order to see leaders raised up, in order to see children brought up in the faith, we must have the power of God or else it won't happen. And in order to try to make it happen, we'll end up faking it. And I don't want to be a church that fakes it. In order to have the power of God upon our ministry, we must pray. And our prayers must not be of the measly, weak, anemic variety. Thou art coming to a king, great petitions to him bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much, said John Newton. And yet we pray as if God's hands were bound and he was like a genie in a bottle. When you pray, speak to the sovereign king of the universe and expect him to be able and willing to do something about it. Our prayers must not focus upon menial matters of minimal importance. Which means that the substance of our prayers should never be primarily about physical needs. You can tell 
about the prayer life of a church by what they pray for, and most churches never get beyond the hospital list. Our prayers must be desperate, deep, groaning intercessions for the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. But there's a second reason Jesus prayed. He prayed for spiritual refreshment and personal fellowship with His Father. E. Stanley Jones once described prayer as the soul's exposure to God. And what he means by that is the sense in which a camera worked before the digital age. You remember days when you, have to, you had to take pictures and then go through that laborious process of having them developed. You couldn't actually tell what the picture looked like until you got them back in that little folded, and then it was like Christmas all over again as you flipped through the pictures. Those were the days, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Back in the days when cameras used film, pressing the camera's button would open a shutter that would allow light into the camera and onto the film, and when the film was exposed to the light, it would capture the image that came through the lens. Prayer, said Jones, was like opening the shutter of your heart to let the light of God in, thus imprinting His light, His purity, His character, and His holiness onto the film of your soul, and thereby transforming you into His image. I like that illustration. It works less and less as the years go by, but I like it. In His humanity, Jesus grew weary and exhausted just like we do, both physically and spiritually. Just imagine the physical, emotional, and spiritual toll that the previous day's events had taken upon him. I think that he rose early in the morning and went out to the desolate place because he needed to refresh his soul in God. He needed to open up the shutter of his soul to let the light of God penetrate and imprint itself upon his humanity. And if Jesus needed to get alone in the presence of God in order to refresh himself in communion with the Father, what does that say about us? Now there's more that could be said here. Like how Jesus evidently thought that in the aftermath of fruit-bearing ministry, prayer was more important than sleep. And that it was private prayer that fueled his public ministry, but we, we need to move on. The main point is that Jesus made prayer a priority of his ministry, and so must this church. And if we are honest, for our church as a whole and for many of us as individuals, it simply isn't. Could it be that our and your chronic prayerlessness is the reason we lack spiritual power and do not bear more fruit? We must make prayer a priority is not a cliche. It is the difference between producing wheat and producing weeds. It's the difference between fruitfulness and fruitlessness. It's the difference between being a healthy church that sees God move in power and being a church that ministers in its own strength and produces nothing but chaff. We must pray, and we must change the way we pray. We must pray in such a way that when outsiders, visitors, come into our presence and into our services, they conclude that we actually know and trust and revere and rely upon the God whom we address. They must believe that we actually believe that our prayers are ascending beyond the ceiling and that He hears us. And they must believe that we actually believe that God can and does hear us. And they must believe that we actually believe that we can't do the things that we ask on our own. And therefore, we come desperately 
to God. In other words, our prayers need to cease being mere formalities and they need to become desperate, passionate, groaning intercessions for God's grace and power. Otherwise, everything we do here is in vain. Everything. Might as well close up the doors, pack up shop, and go home. I'm going to spend longer on prayer today than I am on the last two because I think that's our weak point. We need to become people of prayer. Secondly, Jesus made preaching a priority of his ministry, and so must his church. Beginning in verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So everyone in in Capernaum is clamoring for Jesus, but they're not clamoring for his message of repentance and faith in the kingdom of God. They're clamoring for his miraculous power. And so Jesus determined that he was going to leave Capernaum and travel to another town, to another synagogue, to another preaching point, and he states that this, namely preaching, was the reason he came forth. In other words, he didn't come primarily to heal. He came to preach. It's not simply that Jesus made preaching a priority. I want you to see rather that Jesus centered the ver- or located rather the very center of his ministry in preaching. That's why he came. He came to preach. Therefore, to be a healthy church which follows Jesus' lead and example, preaching must be the priority of this church. And note that this is usually not the priority of the crowd. It's usually not the priority of the world. Which means that a healthy church, that is a preaching church, will generally not be the popular church. The world does not want to come and hear the Bible exposited and applied for 45 minutes, and neither do nominal Christians for that matter. Now, I tried to be fair and honest on the issue of prayer, and I want to continue. I think that it is fair, and I think it's objectively true to say that preaching is the priority of this church. Everything this church does when it is gathered is structured upon the Word of God as it is preached and as it is taught. It's the center and the apex of our worship services. It's the subject of our Connect small group ministry. It's the focus of our discipleship classes. And God is to be praised and you are to be commended for that fact. It is a tremendous evidence of grace in our midst that you are a people who love the Word of God and are eager to hear it taught. As a matter of fact, when people ask me, how's your church doing? My favorite response is to say, they are a people who love the Word, and it is a joy to teach them. So I'm not going to attempt to convince you of the central role of preaching in the life of a healthy church. I trust that you're already convinced about that. But I wonder, do you know why? Do you know why Jesus located the center of his ministry in preaching instead of in healing or exorcisms or helping the poor? Do you know why it is essential that we locate the center of our ministry in preaching rather than in a thousand other programs to which we could give our attention? I'm going to give you three reasons why preaching is and must remain the priority, the priority of First Baptist Nixa. And by preaching, I want you to know I'm not referring only to what happens behind this pulpit. I'm referring to the general ministry of the Word as it is presented in the power of the Holy Spirit, whether that be behind the pulpit or in a classroom or in a small group or in a counseling room or in your living room. Speaking the Word in the power of the Holy Spirit 
is biblical preaching. Now, each of these reasons could be sermons in themselves, so I'm just going to provide a brief explanation, one verse to back it up, and we'll move on. Three reasons why preaching is and must remain the priority of the ministry of this church. It doesn't mean that we don't do other things, but it means that everything that we do grows out of preaching, which is the hub of the wheel, and everything else are spokes that proceed forth from it. Number one, it is the stated commission of this church to make lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. In other words, our commission given by Christ himself, is to produce Christians. But in order to be a Christian, you must be born again. You must be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You must be awakened from the slumber of your sin into the knowledge of the gospel. But this new birth, this spiritual resurrection, this awakening, it happens in one way and in one way only, and that's through the speaking of the Word of God. One verse out of many that I'll give you. We sang it earlier in our second to last song, 1 Peter 1, 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding Word of Christ. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. How were they born again? They were born again as the gospel was preached. It's the only way anybody's born again. And so if we want to produce Christians, that means They've got to be genuinely converted. They've got to be regenerated. And that only happens through the prayerful, powerful speaking of the Word of God, whether behind the pulpit or in your living room or over coffee. Secondly, in order to be a Christian, and we want to produce Christians, but in order to be a Christian, they need to believe. So having been awakened by the Spirit through the gospel, to the knowledge of their sin and the provision of Christ for their salvation, if you're going to be a Christian, you must trust in Christ for justification, surrendering your life to Him in repentance and receiving His righteousness as a free gift of His grace. But no one believes apart from the preaching of the Word of God. Romans 10.13 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the only way that faith comes. Faith comes in no other way. We can feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit those who are sick and in prison, and we can and we must, but that will not bring them faith unless we speak the gospel to them. Third, our commission is to produce Christians, and Christians must be born again, they must believe, and they must persevere in faith, namely, they must keep on believing. Well, how do we keep Christians believing? How are you kept believing despite all of the storms of life that assail you and all of the tribulations and all of the trials? How do you continue in faith in the same way in which you were converted? Through the preaching of the Word of God. It only happens through regular, prayerful, powerful ministry of the Word. It happens only through preaching. At least that's what Paul thought, Colossians 1.28. Him, namely Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How are we going to present you? How am I going to present you mature in Christ? It happens only in one way. 
I've got to proclaim him. I need to teach you and admonish you in all wisdom. Where do I get that wisdom? I don't have it. Ah, verse 29, I need to toil and struggle with all of his energy that powerfully works through me. That's how you're going to make it to the end. Abandon the preaching of the word, you're not going to make it. This is why preaching is at the heart of First Baptist Nixa, because preaching is the only way to accomplish the only commission we've been given. And not just any preaching will do. Prayerful, powerful, systematic exposition of the Word of God is what allows us to present every member and as many members as possible mature and complete in Christ on the day of His appearing. There is one final priority, and that's people. Jesus made people a priority of His ministry, and so must we. The first chapter of Mark concludes with an incredible story of Jesus' compassion for suffering people. Verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity. Underline that. Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This unnamed leper lived an absolutely miserable existence. And his misery was total, encompassing every realm of his life. Leprosy in the pre-modern times was a generic term for any serious skin disease. It included not only what we know today as Hansen's disease, all right, specific leprosy, but it was used to refer to boils, psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, and a variety of other skin disorders. The law of Moses, Leviticus 13 and 14, contained very lengthy instructions about how to deal with those who contracted such diseases. A leper was to be declared unclean and was to be cast out from the community so as not to spread either their contagion or their ritual uncleanness to the rest of the congregation. Leviticus 13, 45 The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It was a miserable existence. Humiliating. Not only was it physically painful, but the emotional trauma of being cast out and shunned by society, condemned as unclean, and sentenced to leave your family and your community and your job and your synagogue and your life, it was unbearable. Just enter for a moment into this man's misery. And here comes Jesus. What does he do? He breaks both law and custom and throws himself at Jesus' feet in utter desperation and begs him for healing. And notice that there is no doubt in his mind as to the Lord's ability to heal him. He'd heard the stories. The question is, would Jesus be willing to heal him? Or would he be like everyone else that shudders away from him in horror? casts him out. This was a dangerous and a scandalous act of faith, but even more scandalous than this man's act is Jesus' response. Moved with pity and frankly caring nothing about ritual uncleanness, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper and said, I am willing. Be clean. And the leper was instantly healed. 
I want to read to you a paragraph. I'm almost done. This comes from James Edwards. In the face of such an intrusion, one would expect an observant Jew to recoil in protection and defense. But with Jesus, compassion replaces contempt. Rather than turning from the leper, Jesus turns to him. Indeed, he touches him. He brings him into full contact with physical and ritual untouchability. That outstretched arm of Jesus is a long reach for his day, for any day. It removes the social, physical, and spiritual separations prescribed by the Torah and custom alike. The touch of Jesus speaks more loudly than his words. The words of Jesus touch the leper more deeply than any act of human love. Jesus is not only able, but desirous. I am willing, he says, be clean. Unlike an ordinary rabbi, Jesus is not polluted by the leper's disease. Rather, listen, the leper is cleansed by the contempt holiness of Christ. Whew. Compassion instead of contempt. Contagious holiness overcoming a contagious disease. After the healing, Jesus sternly commanded the man to do two things. Number one, he was to show himself to the priest and present the prescribed offering for the cleansing, which shows that Jesus, at least as yet, has not totally disregarded the law of Moses. And secondly, he sternly warned the man not to say anyone or say anything to anyone except the priest, a command which the man, as you notice, immediately disregarded. And frankly, who can blame him? What would you do? He was, for all intents and purposes, alive from the dead. But the results of his speaking were disastrous for Jesus' ministry in Galilee, as Jesus knew it would be. Because when news of the leper's healing spread, presumably with the reports of all of the other miracles of Christ, his primary priority of preaching was severely hindered. I want you to note that. What he had come to do, his first priority, was hindered by inconvenient people. And yet he did it anyway. By the end of the passage, Jesus is relegated to desolate places. What strikes me about this story are two things. The first is that in the context of Mark 1, as we've already seen this morning, this was not Jesus' priority. This is not what he had come to do. In fact, when the people of Capernaum thought and tried to make it his priority, he left them in order to go do his real priority, namely preach forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in the coming kingdom. And yet, when he comes to this town, a leper comes up and implores him to heal him, and Jesus does it. And then once again, as expected, the healing leads to further problems. He's got to go someplace else. In other words, Jesus healed this man even though it would hinder his ministry. It's a lesson there for us. We've got to have priorities. And there's got to be times when people trump those priorities. This brings me to the second observation, which was that Jesus was moved by a deep compassion for people, moved even to do what was, humanly speaking anyway, not in his best interest. This deep compassion for people caused him to get his hands dirty, so to speak. He touched unclean people. I want you to try and fathom the emotional impact that this one touch had upon this man who probably hadn't been touched in years. People were a priority for Jesus. Suffering people, inconvenient people, unclean people, and suffering, inconvenient, unclean people must be a priority for this church if we're going to be anything like Jesus. If we only minister when it's easy or convenient or affordable, how are we any different from the world who does all of those things and does it better? If we only minister when it's easy, affordable, and convenient, then basically we've got nothing to commend us to the world because there's no difference. 
We have got to get our hands dirty. We've got to get unclean to help unclean people get clean. And we've got to do so in compassionate, inconvenient, sacrificial ministry to suffering people. People matter. They matter as people and not as statistics, which is why we don't take people and just rush them through baptistries and rush them through membership classes and rush them anywhere and everywhere and never deal with the root cause of the problems. People matter. And we've got to be people-oriented, especially suffering people, especially when it's inconvenient. We need to stretch out our hands and touch hurting people. Where are you? Brad and Becky Selly. Probably, if I, I didn't tell you ahead of time I was going to do this or else you told me not to, which is why I didn't tell you. I'm proud of them. It's not convenient It's not affordable, and it's not easy to take in foster kids. Jason and Tara Hicks, I'm proud of you. It's not easy, it's not convenient, and it's not affordable. But people are hurting, and kids need a place to stay. And you rose up. Cindy Webster, Tyne Burns, Annie Doherty, specifically ministering in difficult places when they could minister and work in easier places. Why? Because that's where needy people are. Would that every one of us would make a decision in our professional career that is dramatically impacted by the fact that I go where hurting people are, where suffering people are, where unclean people are. We need to grow in this area. People matter to Jesus and they need to matter to us. We've been given three priorities. Prayer. We need to work. We need to get desperate. We need to get dependent. Preaching. We need to maintain that focus. It's got to be the hub of the wheel from which every other ministry comes out. And people. We need to be a church that ministers to people. Hurting people, suffering people, unclean people, sinful people, people that don't look like us, and people that come to us when it's simply not convenient to deal with them. At least we need to make those our priorities if we want to be a biblical church.